I am John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for joining me here uh, on this weekly program where I address issues that affect us all from a Native perspective and sometimes tackle specific Native issues that you may or may not be aware of. So um, that's what we do here. And I am so grateful to be on uh, WBAI in New York City and on WPFW in Washington, D.C. So as I usually do, let me start this program with a, with a plug for those two stations. We are, we are listener-supported radio. We aren't just public radio. We aren't just community radio. We are your radio station, so we count on your contributions. So if you're listening in New York City on WBAI, I ask that you go to the pledge line and make a contribution. Uh, that pledge line is 212-209-2950. That's 212 212- 209-2950, or you can go online at give2wbai.org. You can make a one-time donation, or you can make a, um, uh, a time donation, or you can do something on a monthly basis by uh, putting a charge on your card or your, or your checking account on a monthly basis. If it's $10 or $20 a month, whatever that may be, it, uh, it helps us uh, manage the costs of operating this radio station. If you're in Washington, D.C. and you're listening to us on WPFW Jazz and Justice Radio, I ask that you go to their pledge line, which is 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739. Or go online to wpfwdc.org slash donate. And the same thing, make a one-time donation, make a, uh, a time donation, or become a a sustaining member of the station by uh, by making a monthly donation off your credit card or your checking account. We greatly appreciate it. I get none of the funding. This goes solely to the radio station, so I always feel like i got to clarify that. Um, I'm not asking you to support me. I'm asking you to support the platform that I'm on. Um, of course, we also take this program. We put it up as a podcast, and uh, you can find that by searching your on your smart speaker or on your uh, your computer Um Resistance Radio with John Kane uh, podcast, and you can find uh, find this program. Um, look, we, you know, we, I I call the show Resistance Radio, and part of the whole thing is that just existing as Native people in a dominant culture that does not necessarily embrace our existence is resistance all by itself, and. That becomes obvious in, in any number of, of ways, whether we're fighting about being exploited for mascots or <clears throat> whether our hunting and fishing is violated or whether we're trying to protect the very essence of our ancestry, which is our graves and our, our burial grounds. So I've got joining me this week, I've got, an, uh, uh, I'm not calling our, uh, each us, uh, we're not, I'm not calling him old, but he's an old friend. <laughs> I've got joining me this week, <laughs> Harry Wallace from uh, from Puspatuck. Uh, he is uh, he's been at this uh, look as long as I've been involved with things. I've seen Harry out there on the front lines. Uh, in fact, I think the last time I had you on my show, we were talking about uh, eel fishing, or eel, um, you were having a fight with New York State uh, DEC, I think, uh, over over eel. So, um, I guess we could start by saying, uh, you know, how did that turn out? Uh, it's still ongoing. 
Um, That's incredible. Quaid, uh, John, he was saying, and then that's who we used to have passed in the chat. I want Konkachuk's keton. Midday and then in the Chapayo Puspatak Nitap. So uh, greetings, my friend. Um, and I say that because you are. And it's been been doing this for a long time. And uh, um, I'm Harry Wallace. Uh, you were saying in me in my language, which means hunter man, the turtle clan, and I'm the elected chief of the Unkachuk Nation. And uh, I, I'm really glad to, to be on your show today. And uh, to answer your question about the eel fishing situation is that, or fishing and and I was also dealing with uh, clams as well as uh, harvesting clamshell for wampum for the manufacture of wampum purposes as part of our, our tradition, which the state of New York, the DEC in particular, has objected to the way that we do those things. And as you know, that is a very significant cultural and uh, spiritual uh, activity that we've been doing for, for many thousands of years. Um, that case is still pending in... in the Eastern District of New York uh, Federal District Court. There's a motion for summary judgment pending, and I believe uh, we're waiting for a decision by the uh, judge in that case. And so we're confident that we will overcome these objections, that uh, these unreasonable restrictions that have been placed upon us in our activities. It's well, and I have to say, as, as, as a Mohawk uh, or Gunyagahaga, uh, part of the Haudenosaunee, we have counted on our brothers, especially from Long Island and sisters, uh, for as a source of wampum. You know, we we've strung beads, uh, or shells from lakes here for for centuries or thousands of years as well. But the refined um, wampum that uh, that now we we've had these you know, incredible wampum belts created for hundreds and hundreds of years. That wampum has come from, essentially from you. It's, it's come from your people. We don't have clamshells here <laughs> in Seneca territory, nor do we have in Mohawk territory. So the, especially the, you know, the, the dramatic colors that, that come from the purple and, and the white um, uh, that, that uh, shells that, that you guys uh, have you know, oftentimes you know, I, I think people don't understand that while we are more sophisticated today in, in how we manufacture, uh, this the those um, wampum beads have not changed a whole lot in the thousands of years that you guys have been doing this stuff. So it's important that not only that, that you maintain some of that, that that not just that cultural identity, but that that activity, whether it's, you know, the the clams or or whether it's eel which is which is again a big part of what has been your culture for thousands of years it's really important that that you have the um, and, and this is an opportunity given to you not by at least not by new york state create by creation sure but not by in fact you know if, if we want to talk about you know seeking a, approval from a higher power we're talking about the powers of creation we're not talking about um, you know, Kathy Hochul or Letitia James. I, I don't think that those are the folks that uh, that we should be held accountable to when it comes to maintaining or sustaining ourselves you know, in in some of these cultural practices. Well, as you know, I've always we've always said that we don't talk about rights; we talk about responsibilities and obligations, and we have that obligation to maintain this tradition because it's part of our spiritual knowledge, it's part of our spiritual well-being, and so. When we are, and I'm a Medewin man, and in our way, Medewin means the way of the heart. 
And what it means is that when we when we practice these traditions, that means that we have to participate in the way that we've been taught to do. Now, whether we use whalebone drills or we use diamond tip drills, the essence of what is being done has not changed, and it will never change. The, the shell, we believe, is alive. We believe it's part of our, we, our being. We, the uh, Unkachog and uh, Algonquin-speaking people, like the Haudenosaunee, and the Iroquois-speaking people are people of the shell. We carry that shell with us because it represents our spiritual health. And so the whole part of it is, and the same thing with the eels, the, the way our, our tradition tells us that the color comes from that, uh, what they call the little sea worm, that eel that comes in and carries that medicine to the soil, to the, to the land, and, it, and the shell picks it up. So there is a relationship between the eel and the and the uh, clamshell, the saltwater clamshell, that connects to that color, that dramatic color that can only be found, really, in the Northeast United States and in our territory. We are well known for that, for the darkest of the shell being a, almost to the point of it being black and not a color of purple. Well, and, so, and we and the the colors of these these uh, beads, these these wampum, are significant in how we use them in everything from uh, essentially mnemonic devices for for recording um, our history, but in carrying messages. Whether it's uh, you know we talk absolutely. about runners carrying wampums uh, for uh, request a meeting, or whether it's frankly uh, putting people on trial for essentially uh, within our culture, we've used the black wampum as we say as uh, as a as a significant um, message that w- that we use, which. I mean, uh, I don't need to do elaborate too much on all of that for uh, on this program, but but the that range of color that uh, that you guys have been able to produce, and I have to say, the fact that you that you are using um, uh, more sophisticated tools today than we had available in you know hundreds of years ago should not be frowned upon because if anything, it's a more efficient. There's less waste. You guys are able to, and it's not about necessarily the uniformity. I'm that that doesn't you know concern most of us. But the idea that, I mean, I've I've seen the old ways of producing wampum, and I see the piles of it laying on the ground. The stuff that that doesn't, (laughs) trying to drill a hole through through a shell is not an easy thing to do in the in the first place. But 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 you guys have you guys have developed that skill set even with uh, with more modern tools. So frankly there there's there's less waste, there's much more efficiency and you know and I'm um and, and I'm glad you guys are doing it. We st- we all still rely heavily on the wampum that is produced uh by 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 your folks down there. And we and we understand that and we appreciate that and we know that to continue to do this is to keep it in our possession and our ability to manufacture so that we can trade with each other in the way that we've always done. So this is a, this is a vision that has, we established it, it's going back. We've never stopped, but we've been able to re reestablish the, uh, the trade um, um, routes that we've all, that we've maintained throughout history. And, uh, I'm really proud of being a part of that. Well, That's and I think the, the idea that that we doing. we had these kinds of commercial activities um, is something that 
that most never learn about as they learn any any of our history, and most of that history is written by white people. So they leave <laughs> they leave out an awful lot of who we are and what really defines us. But uh, clearly, wampum is one of the things that not just it doesn't just define us and you; it binds us because it's one of the things that connects us. But you know, I'll and, tell and that, you. I'll tell you. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Let me just tell you a real short story about that is that back in 1995, you know, and I've always said that there's no reason for us not to continue uh, treaty making practices amongst our own mm -hmm. because we we should not discontinue that. Right. So back in 1995, we entered into a trade agreement with the Passamaquoddy in Maine. We didn't know where that would take us, but it ultimately took us to a point where we traded in wampum and in fish. And it is part of this litigation that we're in that we've established the fact and the judge is going to rule on it, that we nothing in our history prevented us from engaging in treaty-making practices with the, amongst our own people, amongst ourselves, not just us, our own people, but with Iroquois people, with uh, other Algonquin-speaking people. And that's part of the litigation that we've engaged in this treaty practice and used the, the uh, wampum as a as a representation of the treaty-making abilities that we continue to maintain, as far as I'm concerned. Well, and and again, I, I think the 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 state of the federal government would like to to somehow pigeonhole us into uh, into what they define as hunting and fishing rights, and and ignore the rest of whatever commercial activity that we we were ever engaged in. You know, and I think, frankly, I think tobacco is another example of that. We. We sure. entered into, um, uh, by by any definition, um, what has to be considered a, a significant native-to-native -native trade as we moved away from the so-called premium brands of the United States and moved towards, towards native brands. So uh, that's always been part of our argument, and it's always been part of, uh, of our, our history and our legacy. So I think that commerce, and, and I agree with you, the, those trade relationships— Native to native trade relationships are really, really significant, and and frankly, I think that's still an area for for significant growth uh, between us. And I think that's something we have to, uh, you know, figure out, you know, how we do this, um, in a more broad way. Because you know, I know it's real easy for people to come up with uh, the dollars and cents reasons for doing something, but we know that a lot of this is it goes well beyond dollars and cents, especially in in such a dramatically changing environment that we live in as you know relating to everything from climate change to you know the political climate to the the overt racism that we see um you know all over and, and the global conflict frankly so we this is the stuff that, that has to bind us together so so we can stand stronger as as a group um even as distinct as we may be this is and look you know, Harry, I remember uh, walking on the steps uh, uh, of the Capitol, fighting the tobacco fight with you. Um, what was it back? That was the '80s or something like that. I mean, it goes back a long time. Well, I don't so. want to talk about when that was, but it was a long time. Ago. <laughs> it was a long time ago. So, no, I mean, this is the this is the stuff that's that's really important. You know, and I think part of what uh, that that part of what I try to communicate to the to the listening audience here is that this isn't just about us fighting some one wing of the United States or the state government. It doesn't matter if it's a Republican or a Democrat sitting in those offices. We, we still find ourselves in, in a situation where we're, we're defending our existence. We're defending our autonomy and our distinction. 
Uh, we've seen this with Letitia James, you know, even some of her, mm. her actions against the Shinnecock over over them posting a sign on their own, you know, a monument on their own territory. And, and of course, it doesn't. And again, I'm not picking on Democrats because I somehow favor the Republicans. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But the the, the assumption that people make is that somehow the Democrats are are, are a kinder and gentler um, uh, group of people that for us to deal with. And yet we see some some overtly racist activity that comes from. Uh, from both parties, and and you know, look, and I don't care if if people of color, like and you know, like Letitia James, it, it becomes in a position of power or not, they're still carrying water for the white majority, and that's who who we're we're fighting. I mean, Letitia James wasn't fighting the Shinnecock, um, you know, because because what they were doing offended black people. It was because of the rich white people in uh, in, in the Hamptons that that you know that she was basically catering to, and. And so I say this because you know, I know that I've been pretty rough on, on Kathy Hochul, and, I'm, and, and I will continue to, to hold her or anybody else that sits in that position accountable, just as I would the president of the United States or, or, or a senator or any, anybody. And so as much as I am, I, I know this conversation is going to take us you know, to Kathy Hochul here, I don't want anything that, that I'm saying um, to be interpreted as, as a plug for Lee Zeldin, because I frankly— I'm more concerned about you know some of the the, the racism that that sits on that side of that um, that political spectrum as well. So, but let's let's get right into it. Um, there is a piece of legislation that has been introduced to um, at the state level for better protection on um, on, on on our, on our tr- traditional burial sites. Why don't you give a give an overview on on where that is and and how it came to be and that kind of stuff? Well, thanks a lot, John. I appreciate. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on your show and talk to you about this because we're at a crossroads at this point, and we need to be aware of how important this moment is in, in history for New York. Right now, there is a, a bill that has passed both both houses of the New York State Legislature, the Senate and the Assembly, and they passed unanimously. It's called the Unmarked Burial Site Protection Act. And essentially, New York is one of three states that does not have uh, protections against burials that are on private land that are inadvertently discovered, whether it be through um, a construction activity, whether it be through uh, exposure by the elements. For whatever reason, they they are unearthed uh, inadvertently. And as a consequence of New York's failure to enact legislation, the private homeowner or the private landowner or the private developer can ex- essentially do whatever they please with these uh, uh, remains and funerary objects. And this legislation attempts to fill in or plug that hole in the protection against unmarked burials that exists in New York. The Native American graves. Uh, Protection and Repatriation Act is a federal law that does protect unmarked burials and funerary objects, human remains, 
uh, on federal land and on Indian reservation land. And it also controls those institutions that uh, receive federal funds. But those institutions that don't receive federal funds and those institutions and those privately held lands uh, were not covered under NAGPRA. Well, and and I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you explained that because, you know, I think uh, many people are familiar with the federal statute, but but not realizing the gaping hole that is left because of private land ownership. And it must be noted that, look, we've had our graves looted for for hundreds and hundreds of years, literally. Right. And I mean, right. the very museum that sits in New York City at, and at the bottom of Manhattan there, that, which is a part of the Smithsonian, um, that the namesake of that that museum is is the collector who was who was basically you know, buying this stuff up all over the place and you know and so there were the people that were, they, were, they were looting looting grave sites they were looting burial grounds to um, to, to give this guy his own personal collection and and that ultimately is turned into into this museum and there and there we can there are there are some processes for us to to address some of the very uh, items and artifacts that sit in these museums. But in, in these situations that you're talking about, there are still, uh, and I'm not saying that people are necessarily disturbing <coughs> the sites to loot our graves, but the fact is they come, they, they, the, their findings, you know, neither stop them from their development, nor do they uh, pursue any um, effort to, to repatriate the remains or, or any of the funerary items, as you mentioned. So it, it is really important that, that people understand the significance of this. And, and this has led to a couple of conflicts um, that come to mind right now, uh, recently, hasn't it? It's led to a number of different conflicts. We've had some conflicts with uh, mo uh, some developers who are trying to develop uh, golf courses. We've had some private owner landowners who, found a mass burial site on their property and wanted to build a horse barn over top. We've had, and I, we have some, and it's not necessarily just Native American remains. Up in, uh, up by Lake George, they uncovered a burial site that contained uh, hundreds of bodies of Revolutionary War veterans that were buried there that were buried in a mass grave because they were exposed to disease and they wanted to um, not have the disease spread, so they buried them in this mass burial. And the developer um, uh, dug up these bodies and you know just used a, a, a massive backhoe and it just ripped into these burial site, this burial site, and only gave. Uh, um, the archaeologists from New York State two days in which to, you know, excavate and remove uh, any uh, human remains. There were hundreds of bodies there. And these weren't even Native Americans. These were um, um, veterans from the Revolutionary War that fought on the side of the of the colonies. Well, and uh, of course, so of course, we're, we're also still very much in the beginning of the debate over the the mass and unmarked graves of children that were you know were who died at, at residential schools and you know and that's that's an, an, a national and both a US and Canadian issue but 
Um, you know, right now, the idea of these mass graves and unmarked graves is something that is also, for all intents and purposes, sometimes a crime scene. And, and while there may not be many of them in New York, there, there may be. And, and so this is why having some of this, um, I, I guess, th this thing pushed through. And the other thing I have to say, the idea that the legislature pushed this through and voted both, you know, both houses voted, voted it through is pretty remarkable because we are not very high on the priority list for uh, for the for legislators in, in New York State. The fact that that this thing was was introduced and pushed through without opposition, it just shows you what a no brainer um, a signature from the governor should be on this thing. And and yet. How long has this thing sat before her um, without without a signature? Do, do you do you know? Well, it was passed in May, and it's been and the way I understand it, all the all the bills that were passed by the legislature, she has to call the governor has to call them to her desk, and and she calls him at I don't know something like twenty or twenty five at a time. And she deals with them uh, piecemeal. Um, she hasn't called, as of this day, to my knowledge, she hasn't called for this legislation yet. Hmm. Okay. And I don't think she's going to call for it before November 8th. I don't think she's going to call for anything before November 8th. Yeah, she's fighting so, for political um, life. But, uh, but, yeah. but again, this essentially is, and I say no-brainer, but there's no controversy here. You know, I don't think there's a, I mean, do, do you suspect that there's some major lobbying effort that, that's, you know, keeping this, uh, you know, off of her desk? Or is it just... Well, well there is opposition. Well, there I'm sure there opposition. is opposition, but but is, is there enough political will with that opposition? Do you, do you think that she's ceding to that opposition? Well, there are developers who oppose this legislation. And the developers, as you know, were major contributors to Mario Cuomo's um, um, campaigns, and he would never sign this legislation. And, oh, and, Andrew Cuomo as well. Uh, yeah. I mean, Andrew, oh, Andrew Cuomo. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, not Mario. Well, I'm and, sorry. And, and she That's started... how far we go back, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're fighting Mario. <laughs> Um, but no, and, no, and no, Kathy Hochul, yeah. Kathy Hochul is a is has a very cozy relationship with developers, and and we saw her squeeze a half a billion dollars out of the Senecas and turn it and hand it over to a to a billionaire out here so they could build a football stadium, which you know who knows you know I mean when you're talking about this kind of development, who knows what may may turn up on that on that site you know this is they aren't like tearing the old stadium down and putting it on the same footprint they're actually creating a new footprint so we know that uh, that you know she is very much in the pocket of uh, uh, you know of major developers so I mean but but regardless if both houses pass this thing if both sides of the the state legislature pass this thing it is um, it's pretty remarkable that she is either intentionally or unintentionally ignoring this legislation. Well, I, that's why we are pushing public uh, support for this legislation. We have a uh, we received uh, letters of support from the United Southeastern Tribes. That's USET. Mm -hmm. We're seeking support from the National Congress of American Indians. We've got um, a petition online. We've got support from the um, the uh, forum, the uh, 
the uh, New York State Justice Forum. Uh, we've got support from uh, from uh, other universities, and we're really pushing forward with uh, uh, demonstrating the need. Uh, that we are demonstrating that we have public support for this legislation, as well as as well as the support of the legislature itself. We've asked Tim Kennedy to come on board. We've asked uh, the Speaker of the Assembly to come on board. We, we've yet to hear from all of those with respect to this, and they tell us they're focused on the election now, but they will get they'll, we'll start to work on these things uh, afterwards. So we hope that's true. We don't know that's true, but we hope that's true. But we're continuing to um, campaign for support for the signage of this bill. Um, it's New York is one of three states that doesn't have this type of protection. And we didn't reinvent the wheel, John. We we looked at the legislation of all 47 states that do have some sort of um, a graves protection, some sort of unmarked burial site protection. And we looked at states like Massachusetts and Florida and Washington State that have configurations similar to New York, major urban centers, suburban areas, and rural areas. And uh, we modeled our legislation based upon the uh, what we know works. And uh, those states have legislation for years and it works. It works in those states and basically, and we, we, we see that New York is definitely one of those that would, that would, um, uh, this would work. It establishes a committee. The first thing it does is that it makes it a crime to dig up a grave and not report it. It's a misdemeanor. To dig up a grave and then remove it is a felony to dig up a grave and and um, and uh, and uh, desecrate it, and destroy it is also a felony. So that's the first thing that it does. The second thing that it does is that it establishes a committee, which is comprised of all representatives from all the Native nations in New York State. Okay. So everybody whether you're from Long Island or, or, or upstate or, or, uh, or Western New York, everybody has the opportunity to be represented. And so if, if you establish that there is a cultural affiliation, then you take the lead in that area. If it's in Seneca territory, the Senecas would take the lead. If it's in Mohawk territory, the Mohawks would take the lead. If it's in Long Island territory, the Shinnecock or Honkachuk would take the lead on on I'm making a determination of what's the most appropriate thing to do in this in a particular situation. And third, final thing is, which I believe is so important, is if the the uh, state attorney general has the right to take action to seek an injunction against any further activity. The district attorney has the right to take action in the event of any to prevent any seek an injunction to prevent any further activity. But more importantly, the individual nation or the individual who can establish a uh, genealogical connection to lineal descendant, it's called, can have can they can on its own on their own take action to prevent uh, any further desecration of activity. Well, and that's important because you know one of the the biggest challenges in any kind of legal action is this idea of standing, and so it seems like they broadened that enough to where. 
uh, you or I, if we if we were somehow, uh, you know, the first to be made aware of something that we could take actions, uh, actions ourselves. Now, here's the thing that I I, I want to be clear to the people who are listening here. This doesn't mean that there can't be development. It just really means no. that that there has to be a process that that manages and handles uh, respectfully um, the re remains or the artifacts and, and that kind of stuff. I mean, I think the 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 obviously naysayers would say, well, geez, there could be Indians on every uh, every square foot of this land. Yes, there probably there probably has been. But the point isn't to to stop um, any development. I mean, and we, we could get into a whole a whole debate on what is progress and what is in progress. But uh, uh, in, in this situation, we're just saying there needs to be proper notifications. There needs to be, you know, uh, uh, and there has to be protocols that are followed. And and those protocols may vary nation to nation. Um, and, and, and that's, that's can, kind of what you're, what you're spelling out with, with, uh, with whomever, whomever takes lead on some of this stuff. But um, I think it's important that people realize that this isn't just an effort to, you know, to, you know, to, for us to take shots at developers. Uh, it's about holding them accountable. It's about joining the rest of the civilized world and be, be able to protect funerary remains and objects. Well, there's that, that too. That are, <laughs> yeah, that no, are, that are uh, obviously something that needs to be protected. It's not viewed as an infringement on development rights. It's viewed as a, as a protection against those things that we hold sacred. The legislation itself says if we are a society of people that bury their dead in a ceremony, if we are that people, then we need to protect those that have been buried. Right. It's a simple. I, I mean, it's a, it's a so fundamentally clear as a what we need to do that it is like you say, John, a no brainer. Yeah. If we are those people, then we need to protect our dead. Well, and, and, and so this legislation does that. And, and and look, we would presume to counter, you know, some of the abuses that our um, our, our buried ancestors have encountered by saying that we should be able to build an Arlington Cemetery or or you know or any one of the the church cemeteries that exists uh, you know across the state. There's some that are very prominently featured, you know, in the New York City area. We wouldn't be so so, so presumptuous uh, or disrespectful to say, well, if you're going to do that to us, then we get to do that. No, it's not even that. It's it's about sometimes it's about making the analogy so people can understand. While we think it would be absurd to do something um, on your grave sites, we think that that the the vast um, the vast public has to um, let this seem as absurd to them as it, as it would if the if the shoe was on the other foot. And we know that uh, they were very careful. Like they, the, the non-native colonials, colonials, colonists, and uh, and uh, the white folks uh, were very careful about making sure their uh, dead were marked clearly and preserved and protected, and stones put up and fences and caretakers were made. There was one example up in uh, north of Albany where the Schuyler family, and we know who they are, mm -hmm. they had their burial site fully protected and fully um, um, cared for. And just 
a hundred yards from that, they dug up a mass burial of African-American slaves that the Schuyler family had, and their bodies were on, their burials were unmarked. Hmm. And their burials were desecrated. So it's just another example that how, although we profess to hold these, these sites sacred, we only do that for a limited number of people. And that's why this law is necessary, because it protects along the full, full spectrum of people that are involved in this. Well, and, and it is pretty remarkable that, that New York um, is so far behind the rest of the, the United States. I mean, the fact that they're, that they're only one of three states that, that, that don't have such protections is that's, that's a whole other level of absurdity when, when, when it comes right down to it. I mean, I mean, New York likes to think of itself as, as, as such a progressive state, and yet this is, I mean, there's no other way, you know, and I know people take offense to every, when I, they say I play the race card, but there's, there's no other way to describe the, uh, the distinction with how we are treated in many of these regards uh, as opposed to how others are treated. And, you know, and, and especially, look, I, 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 talk, I talked about it just last week when I was talking about um, uh, the, the residential school issues. I dare somebody to show me one Native person who has received one of those million-dollar settlements that, that, that some little white boy who was molested by a, a, a priest has received. And the state has opened up all kinds of laws to, uh, and, and extended you know, the, the statute of limitations for people to bring, bring these charges against, uh, against abusive priests. But we still can't get—we still haven't begun— to uh, you know, to address the abuses, including sexual abuse, that Native children um, had to endure at the hands of these church-run, um, state and federal-funded uh, uh, funded schools. Well, I, I, um, I was uh, talking to somebody from Ontario, and where they uh, Canada, they they did have what was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Now, for for whatever criticisms, and there may be some founded criticisms with respect to what that, um, uh, how that was handled, at least you had an attempt at reconciliation. At least you had an attempt at at least making a determination of who was involved in that process. And there was some... um, some levels of attempt at compensation. Yeah, I, I, I'm just saying if you completely com- ignored that. If you compare it to uh, you know to to some of these uh, these defend uh, some of these plaintiffs that are bringing charges against the Catholic Church, it's not even close. And, uh, and of course, um, most of the settlement on the Canadian side has been with the Canadian government and their role. The Church is still not Canadian accepted. Right. It hasn't accepted any responsibility. Even even the Pope going to uh, to Canada you know a month ago. He didn't apologize on behalf of the church, the role that the Catholic Church played. He apologized um, that that people who worked for the church. I mean, he, he made it sound like we apologize if somebody did something wrong. Not they weren't apologizing for the role the Catholic Church has played in everything from the doctrine of Christian discovery to this idea that that our people needed to be converted and and needed to be forced into these uh this religious conversion i mean that wasn't dreamt up by politicians alone in the united states and canada this is something that 
that the church had been doing. I mean, we, we talk about residential schools having existed for 150 years. The first piece of legislation on the U.S. side was in 1819, which was the Civilization Act, and it supported a couple of these church schools. It wouldn't be till another 40 years later that um, that the federal government would go all in with this idea of schools that would mandate children uh, be, uh, you know, a, a ripped from their families and placed in these things. And the other thing is that they also are quick to say, well, yeah, but we ended that in 1976 with the, and they, and they claim that it ended with ICWA. But the fact of the matter is, residential schools existed for several decades after that and, and well into, you know, past the, you know, the, uh, the 2000s because they just weren't being ripped from their families in the same way. The placement was was handled differently after 19, in the 1970s. But residential schools have existed for a long time. And, and you know, and, and I think that there does have to be an acknowledgement beyond this idea of reconciliation. There has to be truth that that really an, analyzes the broad scope of what, what happened there. And you can't have reconciliation without restoration. We, we lost lands, we lost, um, uh, we lost population, but we also lost auto- autonomy. And the fact that we're, we're still fighting for this thing, and, and again, when I think about this piece of legislation that does not pigeonhole us so much when it comes to ha- being able to bring uh, one of these actions, uh, I think the you know, broadening who has standing uh, to bring this stuff is, is really important here. And, I, and, I, and, and again, I can't, you know, I, I can't wrap my head around um, why Kathy Hochul would uh, would resist signing this thing, and other than than her playing, you know, you know, I, I don't know, playing dumb on this thing, like like she's somehow not aware of it or something. Well, our process and our responsibility, John, is to make her fully aware of the uh, import of the res- of the legislation. And how significant it is, and to compel her to uh, sign that. Do you know who I sponsored am, the bill originally? <coughs> uh, who was the uh, uh, the the initial sponsor? Uh, the, in the in the assembly, it was uh, a fellow down here, downstate, who's been involved in this for over twenty years, and mm-hmm. it was um, um, I just I just got my, my um, uh, just lost it. Hold on, let me just get let me grab right, the you know, because you know, we even saw a couple of legislators that had initiated an attempt at um, at doing a statewide ban on the on the the mascot, the native mascot stuff, and that kind of died, you know, in the legislature, because you know these things that should not be controversial at all should they should be easy um, asks, easy lifts, and again. This is about them regulating their own people. I, you know, I can't emphasize this enough. Even though we may have um, uh, have standing to bring these actions, uh, this it's mostly about holding um, the governor and, and the legislature holding their own people accountable for these things that you know they're crimes. I mean, whether whether they've been identified as such or not, these are crimes. So, Assemblyman Engelbright. Okay. From Long Island is a primary sponsor of the legislation in the assembly. And he was, uh, he has been trying to get this legislation through for uh, quite some time. Hmm. And uh, the the bill had gone through a number of different changes based upon 
writing it appropriately so that they would be able to uh, um, be palatable to the um, to the, the entire assembly. Mm-hmm. And we that's why we use the models of other states as a way in which to say this works there and it should work as well here. And yeah. in the Senate, it was uh, Senator Comrie from uh, from New York City who was the primary sponsor in the uh, in the Senate. Uh, the co-sponsor was uh, uh, Senator Scott from uh, Long Island, and uh, there was um, also in the assembly was uh, Fred Thiel from the assembly. They were they were they were primary uh, uh, sponsors and co-sponsors of this legislation. But once we got rolling, a lot of people came on board, John. You know, it was just so so common sense for them to make this effort, and a lot of people wanted to. To, to jump on board in Western New York, um, uh, and uh, Tim Kennedy from the Senate. Um, we got uh, um, Judge Montour was uh, wrote a letter of support from the forum, um, and as you know, he was just recently appointed to the uh, Fourth Department, um, and uh, so he he helped out quite a bit. And uh, Judge Gonzalez from the First Department came on board big time. And uh, a number of other different judges uh, and uh, people in support because they understand how important it is as judges, how important it is that this legislation be dealt with appropriately. So they, they came on board in support of that. And I, and I can say that it is okay for them to come out in support of legislation because they're performing a, a, an understanding of where the gaps are in enforcement and in legislative actions. So they understand that as well as anybody else because they have to rule on this stuff. Right. And and, and it only makes sense. I mean, again, this is a a justice issue. So, I mean, it does make sense that, uh, that, that judges are, are, are have stepped up and, and weighed in. And, you know, and again, some of these guys, uh, We've known a number of years, uh, and it's, and it's good to see some of them, some of them stepping up. I, I guess you know I, I still come back to the same place though. Um, New York should be embarrassed um, to have should this be. hanging out there for so long, um, and you know we we we'll make the noise and we'll make sure that Kathy Hochul uh, will not be able to claim ignorance about this, uh, and that she she's going to have to make a decision one way or the other, and and if she. You know, if she if she tries to block this, the, I mean, if it went through so easily, there's probably enough to sustain, uh, you know, or um, override a veto if, if that were the case. But I can't imagine her wanting except, to be in that situation either. Except that the legislature is not in session. You can't veto legislation unless they are in session. Hmm. And it's unlikely that they would be in session for the rest of the year. Sure. So so what would it be? What what could occur is that they should, it could, you could have what's called a pocket veto. She could just do nothing, and as of December 31st, 2022, the legislation would simply expire, and it would be uh, it would and you would have to start the process all over again in January 1st. So, and uh, it is unlikely, uh, as a practical matter, for a, a democratically run um, uh, legislature to override a veto of a democratic governor. Yeah. It's just not done, John. Yeah. So you know that. No, so, that that's, that's the, again, uh, the, the politics, not necessarily the justice, right? 
Well, you know, I had a, I had a, I had a teacher that told me lovers of the law and sausage should not see how either one is made. So you know, we're, we're at that stage where we're trying to make some law here. So yeah, yeah, no. And one thing though is that we let people know that they have an opportunity to have their voice heard. You know, you may not participate directly in the electoral process or in the political process, but your voice is being heard. And that's why I'm asking for you to uh, let your your listeners, let your audience know that the voice is important. Your voice is important to be heard, whether or not uh, you are participating in a Republican or Democratic Party. We need to have we need to join with the rest of the rest of the union and uh, protect those who uh, don't have a voice who can't speak for themselves. Well, and that's we clearly to... the people who have passed. Yeah. I mean, and and this is where it, where it becomes so problematic because it has been so hard for us to gain traction for for our concerns. And and that's why so many of these issues hang out there for year after year, decade after decade, century after century. And and I think it's important that uh, that we hold these folks accountable and and look, I will not only use the platforms that I have, but you know, I, I do a lot of direct uh, direct engagement. You know, <laughs> you know that pretty well over the years. I've made my trips to to Albany, and I've and I've gone to you know, hey, Kathy Hochul lives out here in Western New York, so uh, um, if I've got to beat her up in the media out here, I'll I'll do that as well. I think I think this stuff is really really important, and you know when these you know when when she tries to play the quaint hometown girl out here in Western New York. I just think that she's got to be held accountable for 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 some of the stuff that uh, you know that you know frankly is a little distasteful and and you know and I again I think her her cozy relationship with developers um, and you know and, and including the, the the cozy relationship her her husband has with them is uh, is one of the things this this would be like I said when I say it's a no brainer this would be an easy lift for her to do without having to you know. I don't know, sacrifice much. This is just, you know, and, and especially when you consider her track record with native people is not great. This would be just one of those, you know, little olive branches that she could throw out there. So she doesn't necessarily have to come across as such a tyrant when it comes to native issues. Well, I think that if she wants to repair the relationship with the native people, this is a good start. I think so too, and I think yes, this is, this is uh, uh, everybody. Um, you know, I've spoken to people from Seneca Nation, uh, Aquasasne, um, uh, um, Onondaga. Everybody's on board with this. I remember a time, way back when, when New York State wanted to establish a a um, um, a, a registry of sacred sites. And there was opposition to that back then because there was concern that those sacred sites would be desecrated, especially those sites that are not on our territories where we don't have direct control and possession. And I kind of supported that because we had no way to protect them. Yeah. So you wouldn't want to let people know where, where they are if you couldn't protect those locations. Yeah, if there, if there was nothing, this, especially if there was nothing in place, you know, if there, if there wasn't place. even laws in place to, to protect them. No, ab absolutely. And, you know, we know, um, 
you look, like I said, the, the history of looting um, our, our, our buried remains is something that is, you know, again, it's one of those ugly chapters of American history. John, I have been involved in the graves repatriation um, on Long Island uh, for a long time. And during this uh, COVID, post-COVID period, we've probably reburied over 200 human uh, bodies since, uh, since uh, December 2020. Hmm. <laughs> I can tell you that of the two over 200 bodies that we've reburied, there have been no funerary objects reburied with them. Well, that tells you now, something. Now, you and I both know <laughs> that we don't bury our dead naked. Yeah. So what happened to those few? And you look at the provenance. These are institutions, major institutions that have in, enormous collections. Like you said, Museum of American Indian, American Museum of Natural History, the Peabody Museum, major institutions in this country who all of a sudden when it comes to the provenance of native remains, they have an amnesia. Yeah. So I've done this for a long time, and they just don't—they just don't have memory. They have institutional amnesia yeah. when it comes to what happened to funerary objects of native people. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I. I, I don't, yeah, it's, it's not a coincidence, it's certainly not a coincidence, and I think it's really important that that the public become more aware of this, you know, because I think, again, I know we don't have a whole lot of choices, um, and, and, the, and the general public sure doesn't have a whole lot of choices in um, elevating champions in their political system. So oftentimes, whatever, whoever's there, they have to be guided with a, with a stern hand. Look, these people are not... So they're not elected to be leaders. They really aren't. I mean, they, they actually use a phrase that, that we as not just Haudenosaunee, but Algonquin people have used, that they are servants. They are put in—you you, yourself, you, you sit in a position as a, as a servant of your people. Not necessarily as, you know, some uh, the, the, the leader and champion of your people, but as somebody who serves, at, you know, serves your people. And— and that service is is what really uh, marks what I would would mark what you would call you know, leadership. So I think it's really important that people remember that that Kathy Hochul is is a servant of the people, and so the people have to hold her accountable. So um, I remember uh, talking to uh, one of the uh, our nation leaders in New York, Rochelle Golden, nameless. They're saying, with, with change comes opportunity. And so when you look at uh, Kathy Hochul was thrust into a position inadvertently, and uh, so she has the opportunity for change. And so because she has that opportunity for change, she has an opportunity to make to make a statement. And I believe this is one of the ways that she can do that. Well, let's so, let's hold her to it. Uh, let's, Harry, hold, let's I, hold it. Let's hope that's true. 
I, I want to thank you so much for joining me on the program. Um, I, I look forward to having you return, uh, and maybe we can talk about this in the past uh, the next time you join me about the legislation that, that was signed, and uh, that'll, that'll be the hope that we have. I want to thank you so much for joining me. It is, it's always great to have you. And uh, look, now that this co- we're a little bit post-COVID, maybe I'll get a chance to make it down to your neck of the woods and, uh, and we can break well, you some know, bread together. We, we always enjoy you come down here. You know, we can get some of that shellfish that you've been talking about there. Man. That's <laughs> that's a, that sounds great, Harry. Enjoy, I want, enjoy, I want to enjoy your so time, much. John. All right, you take care I of know. yourself. You oh. too. Be well. Oh, no. Oh. All right, that's uh, that's Harry Wallace, who is a uh, the principal chief of the uh, Uncatug Nation uh, in in Puspatuck in, on Long Island, and I want to thank him for uh, for joining us and and going through this. And you can find the the link to the petition on my uh, on my pages uh, to push Kathy Hochul to uh, to cease her ignoring this uh, this legislation and to and to have her uh, go ahead and sign sign that legislation. Um, that's about it. Hey, look, uh, again, uh, I want to thank the WPFW and WBAI for, for providing this platform. And I hope the, the good listeners of these stations um, stay engaged. And, uh, and if you're in New York or even if you're not in New York, by all means, sign the petition and, and let's press uh, Kathy Hochul to do what is right in this situation. We greatly appreciate it. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio.